Well, we're glad to have you back for the second message in our series, God's Church, an Organism After His Own Heart. This is Julie Coleman, and I'm Steve Coleman. We're members of the teaching team here at New Hope Chapel. Last week, we began talking about the set of principles that we at New Hope Chapel developed years ago to help guide how we go about being a group of people that were dependent on God and want to simply focus on Christ, worship Him, uh, and grow to be like Him. The principles are we identify with Jesus Christ, we use God's Word as our guide, we believe God brings people to the local church, and we expect our leaders to trust God. Last week, we talked about the first principle, we identify with Jesus and sort of uh, got into what the implications of that were. But Jesus is our focus and our destination. Today, we're going to talk about God's message to us, His Word, the Bible, and its importance here, how we use it as our guide. If Jesus is our destination, then the Bible is our North Star, our map, and our sextant, and shows us how to get there. You know, churches can be very different from each other. I'm sure you've seen that. Uh, have you ever wondered which denomination correctly understood God's instructions for what a church should look like? There are so many ways of doing church. How do we know we're doing it the way God wants us to? Well, just before we leap into it, uh, let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for this opportunity. We ask that during this time that you would open all of our hearts that your spirit would have free opportunity to impress upon us the truths from your word. Thank you. We glorify you. We declare our love for you. We thank you for enabling us to have this time. In your name, amen. Well, a quick disclaimer before we move on, and that is, uh, that there's a lot of things to talk about when it comes to the Bible. And we're not going to talk about a bunch, whole bunch of stuff. For example, we're not going to talk much about the process of inspiration. We're not going to talk about how decisions were made to give us the 66 books of our Bible that we have. We're not going to talk about the incredibly fascinating process of how we got from a writer writing on papyrus to the text that we have in now the modern times. How that, they call it manuscript transmission, but all the copying that went on, that whole process. And we're not going to talk about translation, which is a whole big subject in and of itself, since the Bible was written in a language foreign to us and, and not in English. So, uh, we're not going to talk about those things because we don't have time. They're great things. If you have questions about those, please come talk to us. But we're going to kind of skip over all those and ask you <clears throat> to just uh, go with us here. Where we're going to start is the premise that what you have in your hands is, to all intents and purposes, the very Word of God. And there's, there's, uh, we'll be happy to talk about those issues uh, if you want us to. But we're going to look briefly at two sections of Scripture. So, Julie, ladies first. Such a Virginia gentleman. 
So we're going to be looking uh, at 1 Peter 1, 19 to 21 in just a second. But before we do, I want to just give you a little bit of context into this little passage of Scripture. Uh, it's Peter's second letter. He was writing to the churches of Asia Minor. And what was the reason, reason for his letter? He writes in verses 13 and 14. He says, I consider it right to stir you up by the way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ is made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. So you see, Peter knows he's facing imminent death. I mean, we're talking maybe even days. And he's writing this letter, and what is he trying to do? Final instructions. Think about if you knew you had 24 hours to live. What would you do with those 24 hours? You'd probably put down things as part of it. At least I would, cause I guess because I'm a writer. But I would put these things down and say, you know, to each child and, and you know, carry on my last, my last uh, wishes for them. Um, and that's what he's doing here. Um, and so he's urging them towards true spiritual knowledge and maturity, and that happens at the very beginning of the book um, and letter, and then he's preparing them then to deal with the false teachers, which will spring up um, in, in between, in their ranks, and try to distort the truth. Well, what could prepare them? Where will they get what they need to fight that fight? Well, Peter knew by the time he got, the letter got to the churches, he'd already be dead. So he reminds them that what he and the other apostles had told them was not some made-up, man-invented story. They had witnessed, personally witnessed, the life and, and the uh, events of Jesus firsthand. God's truth and glory had been personally revealed to them in Jesus Christ. And at the transfiguration, with their own ears, they'd heard the voice of God say, This is my Son, with whom I well pleased. Well, that's what started their church, was that testimony. But now times were changing. One by one, the eyewitnesses who had encountered Jesus firsthand were dying. In fact, both Peter and Paul were martyred about the same time, right after this letter was written, around 66 AD. So this next generation of believers would now be operating on secondhand information, which would be a challenge. Remember what Jesus said, Blessed are those who have not seen and believed. So what does Peter advise? This is his last letter. What is the thing he's going to say that would make a difference in how they move forward from his death on? Let's take a look. Starting with verse 19 and reading to 21. So we have the prophetic words made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. So Peter's telling them, you're not going to be left behind. You're not going to be left on your own. While the Word in the flesh did ascend to heaven, they still had the written Word of God. Old Testament prophecy, prophets had been validated by the appearance of the Son of God that they had predicted, and now Peter's letting them know the rest of Scripture is every bit as valid as the prophets had been. Both in the Old Testament and New Testament, which actually was still being written at the time of this letter, 
qualified as the word of God because they were God-inspired. None of the scripture was man-created. These writings were to no human endeavor. It was authored by God himself. So then Peter actually describes this process of God-inspiring. He says, men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Well, I looked up that original word moved because I was kind of curious about this. How in the world did this go down? Well, the word moved means, to, uh, the original word translated moved was meant to be carried along. So Luke used it in Acts when he told about a shipwreck that he had been experienced on the way to Rome when they were assaulted by a violent windstorm. This is what Luke says. When the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. That's that word, moved. That's what the Holy Spirit did. He was the metaphorical wind in their sails, bearing the writers along, revealing truth to them to put on paper so that for thousands of future generations, people could find God's truth for themselves. And his deathbed instruction concerning those writings, he says, you would do well to pay attention to those words. Those God-inspired words would function as a light to them shining in a dark place. Scripture would spotlight truth like nothing else. So we have another passage on this subject, this one from Paul in 2 Timothy. So Paul's writing this letter late in his uh, career and life, and he provides a context as well. His context is about the end of time, last days, and he warns Timothy that uh, there's going to be scoffers that come, people are going to have depraved minds, they're going to be oppositional to the gospel, and that persecution is going to come as a result of that. All the while, and he says, evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So he tells Timothy, in light of that, to remember his, Paul's, teaching to him and to continue in the Scripture. And so that's the background, and he writes in 2 Timothy 3.16, verse you might be well familiar with, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. You know, Paul calls the writings, uh, referring perhaps to the Old Testament writings, you have the law, and, uh, and the prophets and the writings, but also to the New Testament writings, as Julie indicated in her section. That word God breathed is a very curious word. A lot of translations use the word inspired because that's how we translate this word. This word is actually a direct in, uh, a translation from the Greek, theopneusto. And uh, the only reason I bring it up is we know this word. Theo is referring to God. So when we have theology, we're studying God. It's the study of God. Uh, Neustos. Uh, that means breath or wind. And uh, if you've ever driven by or walked by somebody using a jackhammer, you know all about this because a jackhammer is a pneumatic hammer. Pneumatic hammer. It runs by air. Air forcing the piston down. 
pneumonia. There's other words that we're familiar with there. So, theopneustos, God breathed. It's really a curious phrase to think about. Uh, perhaps Paul's trying to picture here that this is, the, the Scripture is sort of, is eminent, it's God himself, his breath, a saturating Scripture. Maybe Paul is connecting the thought up to Genesis. In Genesis 2-7, we read that God formed man, dust of the earth, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Remember that? And perhaps Paul is sort of, you know, in a vague way connecting those two. So maybe God's breathing life into his own scriptures. We have a verse in Hebrews that talks about the Bible being uh, living and powerful, sharper than a a sword with two edges. The bottom line is, it's clear that the Bible's no ordinary writing from the way Paul talks about it. Uh, then he talks about it's, it's useful for teaching. Lear, looking to learn more about God, that's what the Bible does. It tells us about God. Uh, if doctrine is not found, if a doctrine is not found in the Bible, we have no reason to accept it as spiritually significant. Rebuking. So it's also the idea of refutation, refuting false teaching, but also refuting our our own false thinking and our false activities in us. So there's this this illumination of what we need to turn from. Correcting has the idea of setting something straight, correcting it. So it marries right up with rebuking. Setting straight those who stumbled and fallen. Training in righteousness. Well, that's the ultimate restoration of people to the right path and helps them walk that path. So he concludes saying, we're thoroughly equipped. We become completely furnished with everything that we need. This, the Bible, is the source of everything we need for life and godliness. It's from God. It teaches about God. And it provides everything God wants us to know. So we understand the value of God's Word. I mean, most churches do. Virtually all churches. Um, Yet, our humanness can get in the way of us relying on the Bible as our primary basis for how we function. We can make this subtle shift in what we depend on. Mm -hmm. So we're going to go over a couple of ways that churches can shift. And we're we're all... concerned about this, not just the other people, but us too, uh, shift in how we determine what our practice is, how we function um, outside of Scripture. Well, a lot of church practices, first of all, are based on nothing more than their particular culture. And I'm sure you've all been in a church like that. Um, Here's some examples. Clothing. Now, this isn't so much a, a big deal as it was back in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, but before the 90s, uh, clothing was a big deal, what you wore to church. Um, I thought that, you know, the roof would cave in when my mother-in-law walked into church for the first time in pants. True, true story. But um, Melanie um, was, had moved to an apartment in uh, Annapolis, and she received this flyer in the mail from a certain church down in that area, and they had this brochure about themselves, and they're, they're making these points about who they are as a church, But one of the things they said, right in this brochure that's supposed to be attracting people, 
that it's only appropriate for you to wear your Sunday best. And uh, we, we cracked up when we read it. We said, well, not a lot of people are going to be flocking to that place because it you know, bodes what other, how other ways that they're legalistic. They were way off in left field with that. And why? Because they were a church that was identifying with their culture more than they were with uh, Jesus Christ and the gospel. There's a lot of things that we do in a church that are based on culture. How we do communion. Every church does it a little differently, right? When you do it, how you do it, you know, what, what's done. Um, all, all different churches. Do we use liturgy in that? Well, we don't really in this church, but a lot of churches live on it. Do we stand up when the Bible is read or do we stay seated? Do we kneel while we're praying or not? And then there's music. When I was very young, my church even frowned upon the use of a piano during the breaking of bread. They called it the wooden brother. Can't make this stuff up. Choices of instrumentation and selection of music, both are a reflection of our culture. I can go on and on, but here's the point. When we attach our identity to a certain culture, our church will eventually become irrelevant. The church I grew up in with the wooden brother, well, they haven't changed in what they have done since I was there as a kid. So when I walk back in their door, it's like a time travel experience. I'm stepping back into the 50s. And the worst danger in conducting ourselves according to culture, in making the culture be the decision maker for us, is when we attach it to the person of Jesus Christ. Because culture, it comes and it goes. But Jesus is relevant to any culture at any time period. And there's even a greater danger. Um, in that childhood church, we had a back row. Probably never heard of it. But it was to keep anyone during communion from taking the bread and the wine who was not an accepted member of the body as of yet. So you'd have like teenagers and middle schoolers that hadn't been baptized, hadn't been made part of the church, and they would all sit in the back row while their parents were up in the front with all the, the, body, the, the recognized body. It seemed pretty acceptable to me. I didn't know anything different until one day I saw that damage that practice, that cultural practice could do. A teenager who had been mixed up in drug and alcohol for some time had kind of a turnaround, and he approached his dad, who was a faithful member of the church, and said, Dad, I think I want to go back to church. Do you think that's okay? Well, of course, it was more than okay, right? So the father brought the son, but as they're standing waiting to get into the, the, the uh, sanctuary, he could sense his son's tension, and he said to him, Listen, Let's, um, you just come sit with me. Sit with me and not have to worry about anybody, what they're thinking or anything. Um, we'll be together. So the boy sat with him in the other section. He didn't take communion. He just wanted the security being close to his dad. But after the service, an elder approached him and he furiously rebuked the father for not observing the back roll rule. That elder had completely lost his center in Christ. His beloved back row was more important to him than the return of a prodigal son. You can see how culture and sticking to it can really taint how you interact with people. And as you can imagine, the father and son never returned. Church culture can be a problem. Surprisingly, so can something as simple as a doctrinal statement. 
You know, churches like to talk about creeds, confessions of faith, doctrinal statements, catechisms, and theological systems that they identify with. And these are all great things, as long as they reflect the Bible accurately. The Bible's a large and complicated book. We've all experienced that. The early creeds and catechisms were used as teaching tools in the days before literacy, and inexpensively printed Bibles were common. All of these tools were designed to be summaries of what the Bible says. They are not God-breathed. However, they're usually the work of very smart and godly people. The problem comes because the human tendency is to put confidence in what experts say. But every product has to be questioned and continually scrutinized. An amazing thing happened on Paul's trip to the town of Berea. He went there and preached And Luke records in Acts 17, Now the Berean Jews, they received the message with great eagerness, and they examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. They were examining the Scriptures, checking behind Paul. Can you imagine? (laughs) Incredible but healthy. You know, I happened across a church website recently that had extensive affirmations and doctrinal statements, statements of beliefs, statements of values. But I did find, it was interesting to read this above their affirmation of faith. The Bethlehem Elder Affirmation of Faith is a human attempt to summarize Bible doctrine. We must be quick to acknowledge that the Elder Affirmation of Faith is a fallible, human document. The Bible invites further study, and elders must push themselves to pursue greater familiarity and clarity in the Scriptures. Now that's the way to do it. Sometimes people can put as much trust and dependence on man-made documents as they put on Scripture themselves. We can't shortcut the work. We've got to study the Scriptures. You should be listening to messages up here that saying, is that really right? Mm-hmm. We love that. That's what we all should be doing. Another challenge churches face is their long-held traditions. So what we're calling traditions is um, a time when people in their desire to live godly lives, um, they make rules to enforce a scriptural principle. Um, A lot of churches take a verse or a passage of scripture and make rules about how it's supposed to live out, but they go way beyond what the Bible actually says. Uh, It's like the oral law of the first century, the rules that the Pharisees wrote and Jesus rejected. Why? Because basically they were treating their invention, their creation, like Scripture itself. And they were putting words in God's mouth. For example, when I was a kid, my parents' generation took the verse and others like it, be not conformed to this world, and made a whole bunch of rules around it. Uh, To them, it meant don't go to movies, don't play with cards, don't drink, no dancing. The four big sins. And people would be shocked if they found out that one of us went to a dance or had a beer. My parents only secretly played bridge with the neighbors. But there's not one mention of any of those four things in the Bible. They're man-made requirements. Adding to the Bible is a terrible idea. 
When we do it, we're creating basically a new law for people and the same people who are in a new covenant with God who have already been set free from the law's requirements. In the new covenant, the law of Christ is the law of love. Our grace-based relationship with God deteriorates with those rules into a set of guilt-based obligations. And there's one last obstacle that we've found in staying true to the Word of God as a church. Yeah, and that is uh, recognizing that sometimes we get caught up in a reaction to something. And we all recognize that the Bible is the final arbiter on all matters of faith. And Paul told the Ephesian elders, as he was meeting with them for the last time, I have not hesitated to share with you the whole counsel of God. We want teaching the whole Bible to be a cornerstone of the teaching ministry here at New Hope Chapel. From time to time, though, we all see a controversy or issue that grips the Christian world. And the challenge comes because the human tendency of people to gravitate toward these things, and some churches make the mistake of even staking a portion of their very identity on kind of one of these things, specific issue or concern. Examples, social issues like gender. Churches get uh, earnest about it and decide to take a stand. Uh, the, the problem is they often spend most of their time documenting and publishing uh, the sin and its practices without taking into account the person and what the, what the mission of the church is to bring the gospel to people. You know, Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. Doesn't mean he was okay with any of the sin, but he didn't feel a need to walk around with a placard saying, I'm against this and against that and against that, but I want to eat at your house. Interpretation issues, like creation beliefs, I can think of as one example. It's a controversial theological issue, but folks make it so important that it ends up church-wide, my suspicion is it ends up church-wide, is getting them a little out of balance with the whole counsel of God. In other words, political positions, identifying with one party or another. Where there are hot issues that demand attention, we want to always be willing to re-examine conclusions we've come to regarding God, what God wants us to do, what his word says, and what he wants the church to do. It's a real opportunity to look at the Bible with fresh eyes. I think a serious discussion about these kinds of things is essential, as long as our conclusions are Bible-driven. We have to work at this because we all have these same human tendencies. To sort of summarize them, some of these tendencies are we feel attached to the familiar. It's uncomfortable to move away. We feel comfortable relying on experts. And that's a good thing. Lots of good happens because of that, but uh, not to the exclusion of good critical thinking, and in our case, the Bible to refer to. We like structure, the structure and security of rules, but they can become a vicious taskmaster. And we are emotional and caring beings. So we want to, to, to reach out, but we need to uh, reach out in the form of ministries and not so much a church identity. 
at least that's my opinion. That's the way the Bible seems to because it has a very um, straightforward mission for the church. So our position here is that we want to focus on the Word, not allow the pull of human tendencies to drive our doctrine, our practices, and our decisions. Well, that's as a body. But what about you as an individual? How should all this impact your life? Do you want to say, so what? So what? (laughs) My favorite two words. So just thinking about us as individuals, uh, there's a story to tell you about. Uh, The scene is a Navy ship in World War II steaming around in the North Atlantic. A young officer was given the watch on the bridge one night. And on the radar, they, they had pulled in close enough to shore to get two mountain peaks on that radar. And he was told to keep those two peaks on the radar so that they would know where they were. No, this is before the day, you young people, before the days of GPS, there were such <laughs> days. Uh, so he adjusted the boat as, as these mountain peaks changed, um, changed distance from each other on the screen. Uh, but he found eventually it was impossible to keep both peaks on the screen at the same time. So he focused on one and said, look, I'm, I'm just, I don't want to run a, onto the rocks. I'm sticking with this peak, and we're not going to get in trouble. Well, as the sun came up and the captain came to the bridge, It was clear to see that the ship had maintained its precise distance from an iceberg. You see, he picked the wrong thing to focus on. They had one mountain peak and one iceberg on the screen, and they ended up following this floating iceberg. They didn't know where they were, which was a very scary place to be in World War II in the North Atlantic. But that's what uh, uh, too narrow a focus can do. It can end up getting you in trouble in spite of your best intentions. So, as an application then, we want to talk about us as each of us individually um, approach the Bible. In our personal study, we need to try to take off those limiting factors um, and look at everything. Just like uh, that guy should have kept two points in his radar screen. Um, When we approach a passage, we have to work hard and start from scratch. Now, that's, that's a challenge, because we all know stuff about the Bible, and everybody here has studied. And so, but what we have to do then is when you approach a passage of Scripture, that you try to leave behind all of the past teaching that you've had on it, and all of the uh, suppo- presupposi- pre- Presuppos- presuppositions, thank you. <laughs> I could look at it, but I can't say it out loud. But anyway, presuppositions behind because you don't want to limit what God can teach you. And so, in doing so, we open our hearts to what God wants to show us this time around. And I'll tell you what, every time I approach a passage, he shows me something new. But it's with that, okay, I'm starting from scratch, kind of a mindset. And uh, I, you know, Steve will even tell you, when we're, we're figuring out who's going to be speaking on what topic for the teaching team, I look at the ones and I say, oh, I want to speak on that one because I already know the application and the main point. 
And then, and you know, I did that with the hemorrhaging woman. I wrote a book on it for crying out loud. I was like, I speak on that one. So I got that thing and I started working on it. And lo and behold, I did not have one thing that was like my chapter that I had written years ago. Instead, God gave me something completely new. So if you try to start new, it's a really good practice to do. And how does God show us? Well, we can find in a lot of ways is the truth that he's trying to reveal to us. But a really important way is taking a careful look at context. What comes before those verses? What comes after those verses? How is it part of the whole of that book or letter or the sections? Or how is it part of the whole of the Old Testament if it's there or the New Testament if it's there? How is it part of the whole Bible? Why did God put it here in his word? When you can answer that question, you've got a better clue as to how. Now, I wish I could tell you all the ways that you could really work a passage of scripture over, but we obviously don't have time. So what I did was I made a handout. It's on the table right next to the offering basket, and it's just different ideas for approaching a passage of scripture and getting something new out of it. And when you do some of those things, and they don't all work for every passage, but when you do some of those things, and they're just, they're just suggestions, it will come alive for you, and it will be an amazing thing. My, my professor, um, one of my professors at seminary, he used to say, would you rather have a piece of steak that somebody's chewed well and then spit out, or would you rather have something hot and sizzling off the grill? Of course, we know which one we'd pick, but that's what you're doing when you go to the Bible yourself. Our desire is to make God's word our guide. We don't want to lean on culture. We don't want to lean on human devised creeds, man-made rules, or operate in some kind of a reaction, no matter how good a cause is. Always, always, we want to follow the path that Scripture lays out for us and make our decisions from the written word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your precious, precious word. I thank you for the depth it has, for the richness it has. I thank you that every time we go to a passage, something new can be taught to us and by your Holy Spirit. And I just pray for each, peop- each person here in our church today that we would be faithful to go to your scriptures and to find out for ourselves so that we can then be aware when something false is being taught. We can be aware when we're following the wrong kind of things in order to function. Help us, God, to be responsible, citizens of your kingdom, knowing what you have to say about it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.